Hey, it's always a, a joy uh, to be here with you. It's a, it's a joy to, um, to, get to, to get to serve and, and lead worship uh, and give our worship leader, Ed, a weekend off. Um, yeah, he, a much-needed weekend off there. Uh, I actually, I led worship for nearly 10 years before coming to Worcester. I, I served as a pastor of worship and arts at a church, and, and by far, one of my least favorite parts of the job, if not my flat-out least favorite part of the job, was the audition process. Uh, we went, it, was a, it was a very large church, and so you know, p- part of the, the thing that helped us as, as we were trying to lead the team is, is to go through an audition process, because anybody can say that they, they, you know, they play a shredding guitar. It's another thing, uh, it's another thing that, the, that there's evidence of it in their life. It's, it's one thing for somebody to say, man, I sound exactly like Britney Spears, which isn't always a good thing, um, but it's another thing to actually see evidence of it in their lives. Think about that. Hold that thought for a second about, about seeing the evidence of something. Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians chapter 5 if you have your Bible. If not, there are Bibles on the back table. If you're just joining us uh, in this series, the book of Galatians series, the, the, the book of Galatians is actually a letter that was written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul to not just one church, but several churches that he had started, that he had planted throughout the Roman province that was at that time known as Galatia. It's modern-day Turkey, where these churches were once located. The young Christians in those churches had begun to believe that they essentially needed to earn God's forgiveness and favor by strictly obeying the law of circumcision. And they believed this because they were being told this by a group of Jewish teachers known as Judaizers, who had traveled from Jerusalem to Galatia on the heels of Paul in order to convert the young Galatian Christians to their brand of Christianity. And so Paul wrote this letter that we've been studying for the last 10 weeks. He wrote the book of Galatians in response to the counterfeit Christianity that was beginning to be embraced in Galatia by these young Christians. And so last week we looked at chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. And Paul, last week, reminded us of the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. And he told the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar to illustrate for us the danger of trying to earn what God simply desires to give. In Genesis 15, if we were to back up and read that story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar... God promised Abraham a huge family that would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And that huge family, God promised, would begin through a son whom the Lord himself would give to Abraham and to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now, both of them were very late in their years, and Sarah had been barren all her life, unable to conceive any children. So instead of waiting on God to fulfill God's promise miraculously... Abraham and Sarah, in a great act of self-reliance, attempted to fulfill God's promise themselves. At Sarah's recommendation, if we were to go back and read the story in Genesis, we would see that Sarah recommended to Abraham that he sleep with a slave woman named Hagar. And that's in fact what Abraham did, and they had a son. 
a son born not to Abraham's wife miraculously, but to a slave woman. A son not born of God's promise, but of Abraham's own self-reliance. And Paul reminded us of that story last week in order to illustrate for us that when we attempt to earn what God simply desires to give, the result is slavery. It's bondage. The brand of Christianity that the Judaizers were promoting in Galatia looked free and promising. It appeared righteous and pious. It appeared even holy. But because their obedience to God's law was rooted in a self-reliant attempt to earn God's favor, the Judaizers were no better off than slaves. And that would have been very offensive for them to hear. Now, if we were to do a show of hands here this morning, I doubt that any of us who at least have been here for some of this series, I doubt that any of us would side with the Judaizers. I doubt that any of us would say that we must earn our way into God's favor by our works. In fact, I bet that most of us would say that God's gift of salvation could never be earned, but just like those in the audition process at my old church, What does the evidence of your life show? You say you can sing? Let's see it. You say, oh no, no, I would never side with the Judaizers. I would never believe that my salvation comes to me by my works or even partially by my works. But what does the evidence of our lives actually suggest? What do the behavioral patterns of our lives suggest? demonstrate. In the passage we're about to read, Galatians 5 verses 1 through 15, Paul continues his very lively and spirited discourse on justification by faith alone, and sprinkled throughout this passage are clues, okay? Clues that I believe will help each one of us to diagnose whether or not we are living out the theology we claim to espouse. Because if we really believe the true gospel, that forgiveness and eternal life are ours right now, in this moment, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if we really believe that wonderfully true good news, then the freedom that comes with that good news will be evident in our lives. But conversely, if underneath what we say we believe, if underneath that we actually believe that we must somehow earn or participate in earning our justification before God, then the bondage that comes with that false gospel will be evident in our lives. And so, without any further ado, how about we read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. It is, you guys are really quiet, right? Am I, am I like extra intense right now or something? I don't know. I feel like I'm all alone in the room. It's kind of weird. 
for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Jeez. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, remind us now that even a passage as striking and as seemingly offensive as this, even a passage such as this in your Bible was inspired by you. You have it here for a purpose. You want to use this passage to save the lost and to sanctify the church. And so we ask that you do according to that ends. And we ask it by the name of Jesus who saves us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay. Does anybody after reading that want to simply go, wow. I mean, Paul has officially gone off the Richter scale. Has he not? Apparently... What was going on is that there were there, the Judaizers had been trying to convince the Galatians that Paul, too, was preaching a gospel of works, which is why Paul so adamantly refutes this claim in verse 11 by saying, listen, if I were still preaching circumcision like a Jew, why on earth am I being persecuted by the Jews and the Judaizers? If I were still preaching circumcision, 
then I wouldn't be preaching the true gospel of salvation through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. See, it's the message of grace through the cross that offends hyper-religious people who want to earn their justification through things like circumcision. Hyper-religious people will always be offended at the gospel of grace. And Paul doesn't mince words, does he, about the hyper-religious when he writes in verse 12, I wish they would emasculate themselves. That means what you think it means. That means what I think it means. He's like, hey, Judaizers, you think you can earn your salvation by chopping off a bit of skin? Why don't you do away with the whole thing? I mean, how, is that allowed to be in God's Bible? You bet it is. Because God is very serious about his gospel of grace. He wants his gospel of grace to be clearly articulated and wholly believed and zealously protected against any pseudo-gospels that would enslave the very people he died to set free. He's super serious about Judaizing theology. The book of Galatians is a timely word for us 21st century Americans where our churches that fill our country are full of people all over that are rallied around a religion of self-reliance that masquerades as biblical Christianity. It's a masquerade. It's a charade. It's a placebo. Thousands of professed Christians who claim to be free in Christ are in reality enslaved to works-based righteousness. If faith in Christ frees us from the demand of the law, and what I mean by that is this, if faith in Christ frees us from having to obey in order to earn God's favor, then we ought to see the evidence of that freedom in the way we live our lives. Amen? It ought to be tangible. And so the title of my sermon is The Evidence of Freedom, or The Evidence for Freedom. The evidence of bondage, however, is my first point. The characteristics, the signs, the marks, the traits that result from self-reliance that often masquerades as God-reliance. The evidence of bondage is point number one, and point number two, to finish out, it's the evidence of freedom. We'll get to that here in just a moment. Let's look at number one. Let's start with the depressing point. How about that? I'm going to have to start cracking jokes so that I can actually hear something. I'm kidding. I'm messing with you. Point number one, the evidence of bondage. I believe that Paul gives us three clues in this passage, three characteristics, three signs that are common to those who may say they're living in gospel freedom, but in actuality, they're living in the bondage of religion. Okay, so underneath point number one, I'm going to have an A, B, and a C, or a one, and a two, and a three. 
I like to be super clear with my outline in case you're a note taker, all right? So we're under point number one, one. The first sign that we might be living in the bondage of religion and not the freedom of the gospel is when our obedience to God is rooted in obligation rather than love. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Paul writes in verse 1. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Right now, somewhere in Amish country, I would bet that there is a team of oxen or mules who are yoked up to a plow and they are plowing the heck out of their master's field. They are working hard, but not because they so love their master. In fact, they probably hate their master right about now. Those oxen are plowing their master's field because they have no choice. They are yoked to that plow. They are obligated to work. If they do not, their master is going to bury them in the dirt and buy a team of oxen who will. The burden of pleasing their master, the burden of maintaining their master's acceptance, if you will, rests figuratively and literally on their shoulders. Paul intends that the image of a yoke would be discomforting, that it would conjure up a sense of heaviness and burden and obligation. Have you ever seen a yoke? The piece of wood that goes around the neck and it's got this huge, it looks like a torture device. He intends it to be an image of discomfort. I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, feel this way if we're honest about our faith in Christ, about our Christianity, about our walk. Despite the fact that Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that his yoke is easy. See how he took that term and he flipped it? His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wonder how many of us have had the opposite experience in church I wonder how much of our obedience to God has been rooted in obligation. Whether that obligation is based on fear or guilt or shame, it doesn't matter. See, obedience under the burden of obligation ceases to be obedience. It becomes performance. What was once about pleasing our master turns into appeasing our master, trying to win his approval trying to earn his affection and favor. And when our obedience to God is motivated by getting something from God, it's called performance-based manipulation. There's an entire gospel called the prosperity gospel that's built upon this premise. The prosperity gospel is nothing more than justification by law where we do in order to get. It's an act of selfishness. Paul says in verse 4, that kind of gospel... It's severed from Christ. It's severed from grace. I've used this example a few times. Maybe your thing is the obligation. You feel obligated to get up and be with Jesus in his word. You feel obligated 
to come to church early so that you can serve the children and teach them the gospel. Feel obligated that your coworker is a pain and Jesus wants you to love him or her. People who feel obligated to obey are motivated purely by obligation. They're joyless. They're a pain in the butt to be around. They're cold. No wonder so many of our churches are crotchety and cranky. We're here again. Punch your time card. 52 Sundays this month or this year. The second sign that we might be living in bondage, in the bondage of religion, and not the freedom of the gospel, is when we place those around us under that same obligation. We talked about this a bit last week, so I'm not going to repeat all of what I said. But when we determine, when we determine the way that others should act, or the timeline of their sanctification, when we erupt on a family member for a wrong that they've committed, an accident, when we gossip about a friend for be behaving a certain way, when we imprison others to our expectations of them, when we combine high expectations with low amounts of grace for one another, do you realize we create a culture of obligation, a culture of burden, a culture in which we become afraid to mess up in front of one another? We become afraid to admit our flaws. We have to mask them instead because of the obligation that those around me are placing upon me. We, we're afraid to be truly known. We're afraid of verse 15, of being bitten and devoured and consumed by those around us. It's why so many of us have have struggled to feel safe in the church body. It's why so many of us play our cards so close to the chest. It's why so many of us have buried the most hurtful parts of our story deep, deep down so that no one ever sees them when Jesus all the while is saying, bring all of yourself into the light. Bring it all. Be fully known and fully loved. It's because we've ceased to give each other what God has so generously given to us. Grace upon grace upon grace. All it takes is a little leaven, just a little bit of yeast. Plop that into the pile of dough and watch what happens. The entire lump is affected, verse 9. All it takes is one church leader or one church member who continually submits to the yoke of the law, they continue to surrender to the obligation uh, to obey out of fear or guilt or shame, and then they copy and paste that over everybody else around them. They expect everyone else to respond to the gospel by obligation to obey. But this way of operating is severed from Christ, verse 4. It's not the way of grace 
This persuasion is not from him who calls you, verse 8. And we, we read that there's a penalty in verse 10 that awaits those who year after year after year imprison those around them to their expectations of where they should be in their walk. It's a hindering of one another, verse 7. It's actually persecution, Paul said last week. Are we guilty of this? Now, I'm not talking about, we're going to get to this. I'm not talking about just letting one another run rampant in licentiousness and sin. But I'm talking about what's the percentage of cases where we go and we try to tell a brother or sister of a species of sin that we see in their life. I wonder what the percentages are. Did we, did we take a week, if necessary, and fast for that person, pray for that person? Did we groan in the spirit about how we can lovingly and most gently communicate that this brother or sister is off in their theology or they're off in their practice? I bet you, that in our correction of one another, we run to obligation first and foremost almost every time. And no wonder, no wonder some of us struggle to simply be who we are right here in these shoes. We're trying to live up to everybody else's expectations of us and it's bondage. And it's bondage if you're a person who constantly holds people underneath the thumb of obligation. You have to keep track of everybody's sins. Give yourself a break and stop. Come into grace. I'm guilty of this. Are you? I'm guilty. The third sign that we might be living in the bondage of religion and not the freedom of the gospel is when our obedience to God is partial in the first place and not whole. Meaning, it's selective. We have selective obedience rather than complete. And here's what I mean. When our concern is not for a complete, holistic adherence to all that God desires, but instead we concern ourselves with only the rules that make us feel extra holy, or only the rules that are valued by those around us, or only the rules that showcase our devout piety and asceticism, or with some of us, we only pay attention to the rules that come most naturally to us or that, the, that are the easiest to obey. How many of us are actually doing an A to Z, introspective, crying out to God, reveal any grievous way in me? I'm talking about reveal, if my tone of voice to my wife grieves you, Lord, reveal it, convict me, sear my heart. I, I won't say none of us. I would say probably barely any of us are doing that. It's because our obedience to the law in the first place is partial. Our, even our, our obligated obedience is partial rather than whole. It's the laws that we're good at upholding, that we make everybody else uphold. When our concern is obedience to only some of God's laws and not all of them, we demonstrate what Paul warned about last week in chapter 4, verse 21, that we haven't even listened to the law. We don't even understand the law. We don't know what we're doing nor what we're talking about. Because the law 
as we've covered over and over and over. The Ten Commandments and all 613 laws that we find in the Pentateuch, the law is all or nothing. It demands to be wholly obeyed or you're out. I testify again, Paul writes in verse 3, to every man who accepts circumcision that he is, look at this word, obligated to keep the whole law. And this is the obligation of those who would try to gain God's approval by our obedience. We can play that game if we wish. We can try, best we may, to earn God's approval by obedience to the law. But in order to succeed, anybody who would do that, you have to uphold every single law, every last law, perfectly every moment of every day, which this is the point of the law is a death sentence. You're supposed to try and live it out and then you're supposed to go, oh no, woe is me. I need grace. There has only ever been one man on the face of this earth righteous enough to uphold God's perfect law from birth to death, and it wasn't you, and it wasn't me. We'll get to that too. Enough of the bondage already. What about freedom? Have you ever seen the movie The Pursuit of Happiness? When the entire movie is about the pursuit and like the credits run and that's when the happiness comes? I feel like that's what this sermon is right now. (laughs) The evidence of freedom. After all, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that may sound like a redundant statement, but it is not at all. See, there is a manner of being. There is a manner of walking. There is a manner of living in the Christian context and out in society. There's a manner of being and walking and living that embodies the very thing Christ had in mind when he rose and died and rose on our behalf. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, verse 13. For you were called to freedom. What that doesn't mean, let's start there really quickly, is a free ticket to to then live however you want. What that doesn't mean is a free ticket to then live however you want. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, Paul writes. He'll continue this thought next week in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, meaning the desires of the flesh go against the grain of God's promise. The desires of the flesh thwart freedom. They do not enhance it. See, few of us have been told that there is such a thing as counterfeit freedom. If religion responds to the... to to God's grace with self-reliant piety, then counterfeit freedom responds to God's grace with self-serving pleasure. And Paul is saying this this morning. Both of those are bondage. So do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh because that's just a different cell in the same prison. But instead... Through love, 
serve one another. For the whole law, oh my gosh, listen to this. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know who your neighbor is? It is the person sitting to your right and or left right now. It's the cashier who takes your money at the grocery store. Your neighbor is your coworker in the cubicle beside you. Your neighbor is the kid who sits behind you on the bus. Your neighbor is the family who lives beside you on your street and the family that lives within your house on your street. See, Paul knows something. There is only one way you and I could possibly love all of those people to the degree we love ourselves. I don't know about you, I love myself a lot. There is only one way that I could love all of you to that degree, and it's this. Only a sincere love for my God who's rescued me with his gospel Only that love is powerful enough to take my mind off myself long enough to place it on your needs before my own. And when I do, and when you do, we are actually demonstrating something. We are demonstrating not only a love for our neighbor, but a love for God himself. And when we do that, this is remarkable, we actually fulfill the very law we are freed from fulfilling. All 613 criteria on the queen's door. Remember that silly analogy? Fulfilled. You can stay. The whole law can be summed up by loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. As one writer put it, faith working through love is the manifestation of a life that knows it is saved by grace alone. When we embrace a church culture of obligated obedience, we can modify each other's behavior pretty quickly, but we will never fulfill God's law. Those oxen, they're never going to love their master as long as they're yoked up like that. But conversely, when you and I embrace a church culture of Christ-like servitude, in which we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we count others as more significant than ourselves, we may not modify each other's behavior as quickly going that route, but we will, by God's grace, fulfill God's law in Jesus. And we will flourish in our homes and in our community groups and in our gatherings together. Listen. Speaking of the evidence of freedom, you show me someone who in response to the true gospel joyfully and peacefully and patiently and faithfully and kindly and gently serves the people around them. You show me that person and I'll show you someone who is walking in the freedom for which Christ has set them free. Do those words describe you? They don't often describe me. 
do the words joyful servant describe you? How about peaceful servant? Not looking to be combative. Prone to pausing and praying. How about the words, oh, I stand condemned on this one. Patient servant. I might be the most impatient person I know. And rooted in there is some form of legalistic obligation that just brews. Someone's not doing something at the time that I think that they should be doing it, and I can blow a gasket. How about the words faithful servant? Do those describe you? When, when life gets going, are you like Christ, like an anchor? Are you stable and steadfast? Can people count on you? How about kind servant? Simple courtesy. It's the church that preaches the law who never ends up fulfilling the law. All they ever do is hound the law. They never fulfill the law and they're the ones that I have to apologize for in Bueller's because they're so cranky. And you've probably had to apologize for my dumb self. Does kind servant describe you? How about gentle servant? Who prays and yearns for God to help give them the tone of voice that they need when approaching a brother or sister who's flirting with disaster and sin. an interesting passage in Psalm 119.45. This is the New Living Translation. Listen to the apparent paradox of this verse. The psalmist writes this, I will walk in freedom for I have devoted myself to your commandments. That seems to be counter what Paul is going for in the book of Galatians at first glance, but it's not. See, it's from the place of being told by Jesus himself that I do not condemn you. When he says, rise and go and sin no more, his invitation to us is for our absolute heart happiness and flourishing. It is to our joy to take the free grace that he has offered us and rather than run into all the pleasures of our flesh, we get to look at his laws and say, no longer am I obligated to obey these so that God would approve of me and love me. He already does, but now I get to walk in these commandments because it's to the joy of my heart and my flourishing. But when I call someone out on sin, I, I, don't, I, don't, offer, I don't often treat it that way. My first response to a brother is not, 
I think you're selling yourself for shorter joy than what Jesus wants to give you. I often come with condemnation, don't you? But Jesus hasn't condemned us. The evidence of freedom, that the freedom that we've been called to is not using that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love given to us by God himself, serving one another, the whole law is fulfilled by it. So today, church, can we be a body of believers who serve one another in the next few minutes of our gathering really well and throughout this week, creating a culture not of obligation to obedience, but of joyful, willful, holistic, wholehearted obedience to the king who accepts us where we are. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Galatians in your Bible that has been such a breath of fresh air to remind me of really what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. I pray for any here who have heard the truths of the gospel today that Jesus, God the Son, came. He lived the life that we did not. He died the death that we deserve. He rose to life in our place, all of it as our substitute. And now he calls us to turn from the ways of the flesh, to turn toward him, to receive the grace that he so freely gives from the cross, from the risen, from the empty tomb, that we would then be conformed into his image, that we would, by your grace, through Jesus, partake in fulfilling that law of loving you, God, and loving our neighbor. If there are any here who that has fallen on fresh ears and would like to receive this grace, receive it. It's yours. It's yours. So God, be with us now as we sing of your gospel. We sing about the man of sorrows, the Lamb of God. Help us to sing to you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.